Well, it's nice to be with you again this morning. So, we're looking at the Bible's teaching concerning the human rights, what used to be called the doctrine of man, although we don't like that word man very much these days because it seems to refer to only half of the human race. But um, the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of the human race, is what I'm trying to survey a little bit. It's a big subject, a huge subject, so um, I'm only giving you a few highlights. But that's what we're doing. Yesterday, I spoke on the Bible's teaching concerning the destiny of man. There's a lot of teaching in Scripture that God created the human race to be a kind of king and lord over the cosmos, over the universe. The whole world is shaped for men and women. It's designed for us. Everything about our world is perfect for the human race. If gravity were a tiny bit less or more, we couldn't survive. If the mixture of nitrogen and oxygen in the the air were not exactly as it is, we couldn't survive. Uh, If the sun didn't shine precisely the way it did, we'd be too hot or too cold. Uh, On average, the world is perfect for where we are. The weight of the earth, the amount of iron in the earth, a position in the universe, everything about uh, the entire cosmos seems to be designed for man. Scientists are discovering it and uh, it's perplexing them a little bit that our universe seems to be so tied up with the human race. That's what the Bible says anyway. Long before the scientists came along, the Bible tells us that God made our world and the last creature to be made in the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, the last thing to be done was that uh, the human race came along, everything else was getting ready for him. And when the world was prepared, God made man. And we're told that humankind was made as the image of God. And I was arguing last night that it means that that we are to, to replicate God. We're to be like God. We are his deputies. We are the ones that are to rule the universe on his behalf. And that's the teaching of Scripture. But it was lost. That, that destiny was lost. We, fought, we fell out of our destiny because of sin. And Jesus is giving it to us back. As you come to Lord Jesus Christ, he puts you back on track where we're meant to be going. He's bringing many sons to glory, says Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. So this is the theme that I'm pursuing. So when we look at the whole doctrine of God, I would say that it has about seven sections in in it. I mean, different people lay out their teaching in different ways, but uh, I would say that it's convenient to lay it out in about seven sections. First of all, there's the destiny of, of the human race. Then there is humankind as the image of God. But then you come to the story of the fall. The Bible has a lot to say about what happened in the Garden of Eden, uh, how much that's parabolic and how much it's uh, literal is is debatable, but certainly it's referring to a historical event, whether it's parabolically telling you about a historical event or not, we could discuss that, but it's clearly something that happened. There was a time in the history of the world where the human race fell, and we fell badly, we fell in Adam. We'll come to that a bit later. So there's the, the Bible's teaching about the fall and about the outworking of the fallen. I think we ought to consider that a lot. If you pick up a book of theology, you won't find anything in it about the outworking of sin. You'll have a a chapter on the fall, that'll be it. But you won't have much of a meditation upon the outworking of that, what it means in human life. In the Bible, you do. In the Bible, there's a lot of teaching about sin and pride and wickedness and covetousness and unbelief. All these things are expounded in great detail. 
in the scriptures and the remedy to them, humility and love and faith and mercy and kindness, these things are all there in scripture. Somehow the theologians seem to, seem to miss it out. I don't think we ought to. That ought to come in our survey of biblical teaching. And then there's the Bible's teaching, and, and I'm coming to that now. The Bible's teaching about the aspects of man, or what I, call, what I call the aspects of the human person. And I'm thinking of things like body. One aspect of us is our physical side, our bodies. The Bible uses the word soul in many different ways. The Bible talks about our spirit. The Bible talks about our conscience. The Bible treats us as having, there's no one word for it, but uh, the Bible often treats us as emotional creatures, what, what we call our affections, although that, that, that word's not a Bible word. But um, Jonathan Edwards, the famous theologian, wrote a book called The Religious Affections. Joy and zeal, enthusiasm, sorrow, sadness, repentance, these things which are, maybe we call them emotional. There's no one word for them in the Bible, but uh, they're there, the, the emotional aspects of the Christian life. The kingdom of God is not, is not meat and drink, it's righteousness and peace. Not righteousness and peace and morality, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's it, a kind of ecstatic note in the Christian life. It's not purely intellectual. Characteristic of the Christian church and of the Bible that we sing a lot. Nothing, nothing else is quite like that. If you go to a political rally, you don't sing very much. Imagine going to a meeting of the Conservative Party and you sing for an hour before you start the meeting. That, that wouldn't happen there, would it? It happens with us. Why does it happen to us but not with them? The answer is they don't have anything to sing about, but we do. We, we, we've got something to sing about. We, there's, there's more than just the, the intellect and doctrine. We worship, we sing, we praise. There's the affections. Although, having said that, you might be interested to remember that Hitler's meetings were very religious. They did begin with singing and songs and music. You could think about that. It's because there was something demonic in Hitler's meetings. There was something spiritual there. There was a kind of equivalent to uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a book about Hitler by a man called uh, Michael, what's his surname? Michael, Michael, Michael something, I've forgotten his surname, on the Hitler regime. And it describes the meetings of Hitler. And it points out that they're like religious meetings, they're like churches. And then as he describes the, the public speaking of Hitler, he says, he begins very slowly, and then something happens. And this is what he says, Michael, what is that surname? I've forgotten it. He says, he's not a Christian, he's just a secular historian. He says, I can only use an ancient metaphor. This is his words. I can only use an ancient metaphor. There comes a point where the spirit falls. That, that's how he describes Hitler's meetings. If you do get political meetings which are more religious than political, but the power there is a kind of evil power, and you see it in the, in the work of Hitler and a few others, Amin and a few others. So, there's a side to the human person which is the affections. It's not, it's not just the intellect. So, there, there are the affections, and then there's what we call the will. We decide, we do things, we determine, we resolve. There's, there's that aspect. Now, I call all these things the, the aspects of the human person. And I want to think about them. So, we think about the destiny of man, the image of God in man, the fall, the, these, these aspects of man. And then we really ought to go on to, to consider man redeemed, but then you're getting into the teaching about salvation. And finally, man glorified, when, when we're in the final glory, a new heavens, a new earth, a new body, resurrection from the dead. Those are the kind of topics we have in the, 
in the Bible. I'm not quite sure, and even now as I'm standing here, I'm not quite sure what order to do these things in. Not, but uh, we'll just go as we go. But uh, there are these different aspects in the human person. Let me try to talk about them a little bit, and then I want to come at some stage to Matthew chapter 18. Maybe we'll read that verse. Matthew chapter 18 and verses 8 and 9. Matthew chapter 18 and verses 8 and 9. Jesus, or beginning at verse 7, Jesus said, Woe to the world for temptations, temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lamed than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. So if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Maybe I will start there and uh, think of the other aspects a bit later. If you look at that passage carefully, you will see that it's distinguishing between you and bits of you that you could possibly get rid of. Uh, If your hand causes you to sin, it's making a distinction between your hand and you. And if your hand is just a picture, it's a picture, um, we'll work it out, it's just picture language, but if, if your hand is causing you to sin, you could, could possibly, it's only, it's only picture language, don't, don't take it literally, it's possible for you to cut off something which is exceedingly precious to you, your hand or your eye or your foot, and, and throw it away, and you're still there. You could lose a limb... But you survive, you've not ceased to exist. You you could have a a hand that's damaged, you could go blind in one eye and you you lose the use of an eye. But uh, you are still there, you've not lost your person, you've not ceased to exist. In other words, that passage, many other passages, but that one, is distinguishing between you and bits of you that could be dispensed with, but you would still be there. Now, this is a very profound thing, and, and I would like to dwell on, it, dwell on it. Maybe I'll stay on it for, this, for the whole of this session. You see, what's wrong with the world is that they don't understand themselves. We are to understand ourselves. And one of the most amazing things about the human person is that we actually don't understand ourselves. You would, you would think that the one thing that we ought to understand would be ourselves. You would think you could say, well, chemistry and maths and astronomy and physics and and computers and all these things, I can't understand these things, but at least I can understand myself. You you might think that, but it's not true. Actually, we don't even understand ourselves. And I think I could show you all over the Bible times where people are struggling with the human person and they say, well, I I don't even understand it. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You You know that verse, Jeremiah 17, 9? Or the wretched man in Romans 7, what the good that I do, that I want to do, I don't do, and the wickedness I don't want to do, that's what I do. Uh, oh, wretched man that I am. I don't even understand myself. Oh, wretched man that I am. This guy is totally perplexed about himself. And Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar walking around saying, well, I, I built this great city, Babylon. God says, oh, really? And he goes insane and starts chewing the grass. He, he doesn't really understand himself. 
Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know, I, I could sentence you to death. Jesus says to him, you, you don't even know who you are. You can have nothing unless it's given to you from above. You've got no power except that which is given to you by God. Pontius Pilate does not realise that his power, his position as procurator of Rome comes entirely from God, it's not his own ability. We don't understand ourselves. Politicians think they're, they're where they are because of how clever they are. But they're not, they're because they're put there by God. God can put a Nero there, he can put anybody there, he can pull anybody down. They're under God. And uh, the great men of the world don't realise they're under God, but they are. And we don't realise ourselves. And one of the things we do not realise, so by nature, men and women don't realise it by nature, is that there's a difference between themselves, their self, their true person, what they truly are, and their circumstances and the bits and pieces of their life which are dispensable. You could lose an, an arm, a hand, an eye, but you would still be there. You are different from certain attachments which are, as it were, a bit of you, but they're dispensable. You, you could actually lose them and you would still be there. And this is true not just of, of, of the body, which is the most precious thing we have. Our bodies are things which are most precious to our eye, our hand, our, our limbs. Those are very precious things to us. It's not only true of the body, it's true of everything. The whole world is attachments and circumstances in which we, we the person, live. But the trouble with the world and what we need to see ourselves is there's a difference between ourselves and our attachments and circumstances. And what matters is ourselves. Remember how Jesus said, what should it profit a man if he gained the whole world, but he loses his soul, he loses himself. He can be rich, he can be clever, he can be a millionaire, he can be, have a comfortable life, all of his circumstances are perfect. But what if he loses himself? What if himself is, is ruined and, and he, he's sentenced to abandonment from God? What should it profit a person if he gains perfect circumstances and the perfect situation, but he loses himself? You see, the Bible constantly draws this distinction between ourselves and the situations we may find ourselves in and the attachments which are possibly dispensable. So think about, think about it in terms of the world and what the world is concerned about. What does the world bother about? When you're you're trying to help destitute Africa, when you're trying to help needy people, when you're trying to minister to the poor, what what are you actually catering for? Well, the answer is we are concerned about people's education. We want people to be well educated. We are concerned about people's finances. We don't want them to be in poverty and destitution. We're concerned about people's hygiene and we're concerned about their freedom. We want to spread democracy around the world, maybe, and have people to have a certain amount of freedom of life. We're concerned with their dignity. We want to exalt, uh, E-X-A-L-2, we want to lift up womankind and children. We want to care for those people. But if you think about it, all of those things are, are circumstances. They're just the situation in which you find yourself. They're not the person himself. You can help a poor, destitute person. At the beginning, you have a person who's a sinner, he's fallen, he's a human being, and he's sinned in his life, as there is in all of us. So he's a, he's a poor sinner. And you help him, and you minister to him, and at the end, end you, you've, you've raised him a little bit. He's got a job, and he's doing well in life. You've turned a poor sinner into a rich sinner. 
but you haven't changed the sinner. He's still the same person. The person is still the same. And what he did on his bicycle, he now will do with an aeroplane. He, tra- he, traveled, he traveled somewhere on his bicycle, now he goes there by jumbo jet. But the question is not what he's traveling in, but what he's traveling to do. He's traveling to steal, to lie, to meet some woman, some man, get involved in some corruption. His mode of transport has, has been upgraded, but he has not been upgraded. He is the same as he ever was. You've dealt with his circumstances. Or you have a person who's sick and you give him healthy. Well, he was a sick sinner, now he's a healthy sinner. But he's still a sinner, he's still, got, he's still the same person. And this is the thing that we need to get hold of. And it's very typical of, of us at the present stage of history. There was a time in our culture, century, a couple of centuries back, when people realised these things. Very few people realise them today. You see, over the course of the last century or so, beginning, I suppose, with evolution and the days when we began to regard the human person as just a, a kind of developed animal, we have forgotten about the soul. The average person doesn't think very much about the, what we call the soul. That's not a technical word in the Bible, but we use that word. It all goes back into, into Western culture and... Um, I could give you the history of it, but it would take us too long. We've got very confident in our intellect and our cleverness. We think that we can master our world. We don't need God anymore. This is the way people think. Science and technology is making life very nice for us. And so, what, what happened? It began... When did it begin? It, I, I, I guess it began with Western philosophy, Immanuel Kant and those people. But uh, it got much worse. Evolution made it worse. People like D.H. Lawrence, the uh, novelist, Lady Chatterley's lover and all that stuff. That was really the same sort of thing. Never mind about all this uh, logic. Let's, uh, let's uh, just go back to our, our feelings and express ourselves. We're basically all right. Let's express our, sen- our sensuality. Let's express what we really are. Just accept ourselves. Self-expression, that was the phrase that slowly, slowly uh, came into the 20th century. It affected education. Think of the word kindergarten. A child's garden, a kindergarten. We don't want to teach children any, any, anymore. Let them just play in the garden. A kindergarten. That, that kind of a development in educational thinking, where it's as though the child is basically all right. All he has to do is play and express himself, and all will be well. This uh, notion of self-expression, which is very popular a generation ago. We don't use that phrase so much these days, but uh, it began with that. And so uh, we, we view ourselves as basically all right. Uh, we ourselves are really quite good people, basically. And uh, all we need is good circumstances, and we need uh, good hygiene and education and social welfare and a few things like that, and all will be well. It's... it's it's forgetting altogether that the self is not the same as our circumstances. The self is not the same as, uh, as our environment and the, the attachments to our lives and the, the things that we have. And so, as that kind of style of thinking has gone on in our society, especially in the West, it's, it's ruled out certain things. It drops the notion of sin. You see, if you're basically all right... And all you have to do is express yourself and get all your circumstances right. Well, you're not mentioning sin. The thought that you yourself might be in need of change. Remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus 
and he's a parliamentarian. Remember that Nicodemus comes from the Jewish Sanhedrin. And he comes and he says, we know, we know that you must be a sent from God because nobody could do his miracles. <laughs> Who does he mean by we? We know that you, you're a teacher sent from God. Who is the we? Well, the answer is it's the Jewish parliament. He's a parliamentarian. And when Jesus says you must be born again, the word you is plural. It doesn't mean you, Nicodemus. It means all you people out there leading the country, you, a whole lot of you, must be born again. It's a plural word in, in the Greek. And so here's Nicodemus saying, you know, I think you could help us a bit. You know, you're, you're a miracle worker. You could really, we could do with you in government. And uh, you could really help our country. He's, he's hoping to get a little bit of help from Jesus to, as it were, improve the situation in the country and give the, give the government a bit of, bit of uh, miraculous help. That's what Jesus is, is being used for by Nicodemus. Jesus interrupts him. He just butts in. Nicodemus never gets to his question. Whatever he was going to ask, he never got to it. Jesus just butts in. Nicodemus, unless you, you plural, you as a person, unless you people are born again, unless something happens to you in your person, unless you are changed, unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom. Don't even talk come to me, talk about the kingdom. You'll know nothing about it until something happens to you. You see, Nicodemus wants a little bit of help in the circumstances. Jesus wants Nicodemus to be radically made a new person. He, he wants the person of Nicodemus to be changed. And so, if you don't have this distinction between you and everything else, well, you lose any concept of sin. You lose any idea of a conscience. You don't worry too much about your conscience. What is the conscience? Well, it's that little aspect of you. It's not, it's not the voice of God. It's part of you. It's something in you. It's not the voice of God because it can be wrong. Your conscience can be wrong. If it was the voice of God, it would never be wrong. But um, it's that aspect of you which feels uneasy when you do certain things. You do something and you, you feel bad. You hope nobody will find out. And your conscience is accusing you. But that's largely gone. People, people don't have much sensitivity of conscience <coughs> these days. Well, that's part of this uh, forgetting the self. It's part of this just uh, accepting that you're basically all right, you just need to make life comfortable. And, and sit, any idea of sin goes out. Any idea of conscience goes out. And I would argue it's... I find it difficult to put this into words, and I don't know quite how to say it. But um, I would argue uh, that your ability to think deteriorates. When you are only concerned about your circumstances, you think at a very superficial level. You don't think much about yourself. You don't think about you. You think about, well, what's my, what's my salary? Where am I going for holiday this year? Uh, can, can, do I, can I be a respectable person in society? You're thinking about your circumstances. You're not so much thinking about you. And in other words, the, the depth of level at which you think is not very profound. You don't think very profoundly. You see, we live in a world of technology, don't we? Very, very clever technology. But there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between, between cleverness and real thinking. You, you can be clever without really thinking very much. You can be a, a clever scientist and manipulate things and make machines and, uh, and invent things. You're being clever. But you can be clever without actually facing yourself, without actually thinking at a very deep level. And this is why when the Bible's talking to us about salvation, and the Bible talks to us about salvation. The first thing the Bible asks of us 
when we're thinking about salvation is that we rethink. The word repent means to rethink, even, even in its etymology, repent means to rethink. We, we have to rethink, to think again. That's basically what repentance means. It doesn't so much mean to turn your life around and be upright, uh, to change direction. People often define repentance that way. That's really the fruit of repentance. John the Baptist says, where's the fruit of repentance? There's a difference between repentance and the fruit of repentance. Repentance is rethinking. Repentance is taking a look at yourself that you never ever did before. Repentance is saying, well, I, my, my circumstances are right, but what about me? And when, Jesus, when John the Baptist comes to Israel, preliminary to the coming of Jesus, he says, repent. And when Jesus comes, he says, repent, rethink, rethink. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is coming into your life as a king. He wants to do things. He wants to change you. Rethink, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's asking us to, as it were, think about things that have never, we've never thought of before. We think about ourselves in the presence of God. We ask questions about, what does God think of me? What am I really like? Do I, do I pray? Do I worship? Am I grateful? Am I, am I a man or a woman of love? We don't even think about these things. And if you don't think about the self, you might be clever, but you don't really think. You don't really get down to the, to the, to the bottom of, of the realities of life. And that's why the very first thing of the gospel is to rethink. It's even, it's even put before faith. The Bible never says believe and repent. It always says repent and believe. Repenting is, is the point where you're, you're ready to believe. You, you start rethinking everything. And you think, well, who am I? Where am I going to? What's life all about? I'm going to die one day. And, 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 and am I right? My circumstances might be right, but am I right? What's really a profit a man if he gains everything, but he loses himself, he loses his soul? This is part of the biblical picture of the human person, and we are the only ones who see it. Nobody else sees this. Everybody else just thinks of himself as a kind of unit. And it's not actually, they're not actually thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their circumstances and so on. So I'm arguing that this um, abandonment of the Christian faith has taken place ever since about the mid-19th century. The Christian churches declined numerically since about the 1850s. Have you ever noticed in Britain these huge churches? You go to some place and there's the Methodist Central Hall. It will take thousands. Westminster Chapel will take 3,000, three galleries, two, 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 the hall and two galleries. You see these huge churches. But you know they've never been used in their entire history. Nobody ever needed the churches of those size, that size. So why did they build them? Why do you get these huge churches built that no one's ever used, except for special meetings? You don't, you don't use them on a, a daily, week-by-week -week basis. Well, the answer is that the Church of Jesus Christ was growing and growing and growing and growing. And by the 1850s and thereabouts, people thought, oh, we're going to need big buildings. And they started really building these huge buildings. They expected the growth to go on. They expected the church to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So they built huge buildings. And the date of all those buildings, including Westminster Chapel, the date of all those buildings is in the 1850s. But actually, the 1850s was a turning point. Evolutionism came in, and worst of all, biblical criticism came in. Inside the churches, people began to attack the Bible. People had often attacked the Bible, but it had been outside the churches. Now, for the first time ever, people began to attack the Bible inside the churches. And when a church does that, it's committing suicide. When a church starts attacking the Bible, it's going to die.
And that's what happened. The churches began to d- decline as, as they said, well, we're, we're modern people now. Let's study the Bible. Let's uh, put it under our historical criticism and see what's really true and what's not and have the bits of it we like. As soon as they started doing that, the churches began to decline. And it's declined ever since. What's the population in Britain that goes to church? I don't know. I can tell you what this is in Nairobi. In Nairobi, it's 16%. 16% of Nairobi are physically inside a church building on a Sunday morning. What would it be in Britain? I have no idea. 0.1 of a percent, maybe? One-tenth of a percent? One in a thousand, maybe? I don't, I don't know. But uh, in, in the 1850s, it might, be 80, it might be 40% of the population. How comes that there used to be 40% of the population in church, but today it's less than 0.1? What happened? Well, the answer is we began to attack the Bible inside the churches. And those huge buildings which were built to get the great numbers, they, they never have been used ever in the history for what they were built for. So it's that point where people began to forget the biblical teaching and we forget the nature of man and we be, we're just a complicated animal, as, as Darwin said, or we're just a, a psychological machine, as Freud said, or we're just totally material, we're just a material being, as, as people like Richard Dawkins would say. That view of the human race, forgetting the person, forgetting the soul, came in. And at that point, the Christian church began to decline. So then, what's the biblical answer? Where do we come as Christians? Well, as Christians, we surely insist that there's something in man which is more than the body. There's some, that the human person is more than the situation. There's such a thing as the soul. It will last beyond death. When you die, your soul will still be there somewhere. There's something in man which is beyond circumstances. It's more than the hand. You can chop your hand off, but, but you're still there. You can lose an eye, but you are still there. You can lose a limb, but you are still there. How much can you lose? A lot. You can lose your kidneys and your gallbladder. Not your kidneys, but your gallbladder. You can lose a lot. But hang on to your lungs and your heart. But you, you can use a lot and, still, and you're still there. But you, you, who, who are you? Where are you going to die when you die? What's happening to you? Do you love people? Do you live for God? Are you full of gratitude? What, what's true of you? And so Jesus, coming back to Matthew 18, Jesus says, well, temptations are going to come and they'll, they'll, they'll drag you into sin. They'll do things for you. But if your hand, something in your circumstances which is very precious to you, or your foot, some, or, or your eye, something which you really would not want to lose, but if it's damaging you, if it's, if it's ruining you, then it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame, have something missing, something you, something you lose. At least you are right with the Lord. If your eye causes you to sin, well, work out the details. It means, first of all, there's, there's at least a duality. It may be more than a duality. Maybe there's a triplicity. How many, how many bits, how many aspects are there to the human person? Sometimes it's one, just you. Sometimes it's two. Mortif- you mortify the deeds of the body, there's two. Sometimes it's three. Be, be holy in body and soul and spirit. One, one, one Thessalonians chapter five. Sometimes it's four. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. How many, how many bits and pieces are there in the human person? And then there's the conscience and the, and the emotions. There's all these different aspects of the human person. And the pagan, pagan ways of thinking are simplistic. You're just treating yourself as a kind of animal with a body and nothing else. But now the human person is complex. There's all sorts of things in it which nobody really understands. We don't even understand ourselves. And it's God who reveals who we are. You don't know who you are unless God reveals who you are. 
and he reveals that you are at the very least a duality, if not a triplicity or, or, or a fourfold being. You, you have different aspects to you. And there's a part of you which is not your body, it's an aspect of you which is not your body, it will, it will last beyond the tomb, it, it's, the, it's the person, it's, it's, it's you as you really are, as a person. It's not the same as your body. You can lose bits and pieces of your body, but you are still there. You've got to care for you. And Peter says, be careful. Remember 1 Peter chapter chapter 3 or 4, where Peter says, be careful of these lusts which wage war against the soul. You know that, that verse in 1 Peter? Things that wage war against your soul. Guard your soul. Or as the book of Proverbs puts it, guard the hearts, because out of the heart flow all of the issues of life. Think about yourself as you are in the presence of God's. Have you, have you, have you repented of sin? Have you got your sins forgiven? Do you know, do you, never mind about your body for the moment or your different aspects of your life, but you, have you found peace with God? Are you reconciled to the Lord? Is God your Father? Are you born again? Are you a new person? Guard the soul. Watch for yourself, you, as you really are. Not these trivialities that are your, your circumstances. They're all right. You do, you do your best with them and God will, God will take care of them. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus said, don't worry about what you put on, or your money, or your clothing, what you should eat, what you should wear. Seek you, for, seek you, you, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, what are all these things? All these side issues, all these extra additions, all these bits and pieces around your life. If you take care of the centre, God will take care of everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, anything else you might ever be worried about, all these things shall be added unto you. You take care of the heart, and let God take care of everything else. You take care of who you are, and God will take care of all of your circumstances. Guard yourself, guard you, the person. And if there's something in your life as precious to you as a hand, but it's leading you into sin, better chop it off. He says, only picture language, don't, don't do it literally. Origen, the early church father. How, how can I put it? He mutilated his body, t- taking, taking this verse quite literally. You don't have to do that. It's not literal. It's just a picture language. You don't have to mutilate yourself. But uh, you might lose a few things that are precious. You might, lose, you might turn aside some friendship which is not helping you. You might give up some good thing that's getting in the way of your knowing the Lord. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, well, what can I do to inherit? Not what must I do to be saved. What, what must I do to inherit all that you want to give me? And Jesus says to him, your money is getting in the way. You, you do well to give it all the way and start again. And you'll inherit everything I want to give you. Come and follow me. I'll train you. I'll put you into my kingdom. I'll use you. But this particular thing of your life, you better lose it. Doesn't say that to everybody. Not everybody's told to give all their wealth away. It's what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. One thing in his life which was getting in the way of his inheriting everything God wanted to give him. And so Jesus says, you better give it away and start again. Come follow me and I'll, I'll train you, put you into my ministry team and you will inherit all these things God wants to give you in your life. So there's a duality and it means that some parts of our life are dispensable. Some good parts of our life might maybe have to be chopped off just for the sake of the kingdom of God. They may not be necessarily sinful, but we need to, our life needs to be focused. And if something, even something good is getting in the way, better to get rid of it and, and, and go on with God than that thing be hindering us. Some things of life are dispensable. 
And then Jesus warns us that things that out are outside us may come in to tempt us. Temptations must come. Uh, don't you be one of the ones that brings temptation to other people. Woe to those by whom the temptation comes. But temptations will come. They're coming from outside and they, as it were, want to damage and attack you. They want to destroy you and your relationship to the Lord. They want you to, to turn into sin. They want you to neglect God. They want you to be ungrateful. They want you to be unloving. They're coming and they're tempting you, the person. Well, says Jesus, deal with this. Cut, cut off things that are getting in the way. Push, put them out of the way and focus upon God. And so the teaching is that decisions in life, decisions have to be made about the soul, about, about the person. Here's a person, he sees that uh, something that's very precious is causing him to sin. So he tears it out and he throws it away. But I, but I can put it like this, that we have to make decisions about life. We have to ask ourselves, where am I going? What's happening to me? Am I growing in grace? Am I getting more spiritual as the days go by? Am I learning to live for God more? Am I depending more upon the Holy Spirit? Am I living by prayer? Am I going after love? The, the high point in the Christian life is love. If you don't have love, you, you, you're no one. You're, you're getting nowhere. If you talk with the tongues of men and of angels, but you don't have love. If you have, if you have gifts of prophecy and all knowledge and you can move mountains, but you don't have love. If you're so generous that you give everything away, but you still don't, you, even your generosity is not coming out of love. You're nothing, you are nothing, you gain nothing, you're getting nowhere. Nothing you're doing is worth doing unless it's coming out of love. You see, the, Christ, the early Christians, they became famous for their love. You know, I was chatting with someone, who was it? Was it Jim? I've forgotten who it was now. About the way in which Britain is getting steadily more anti-Christian. And you can, uh, you can be discriminated in a school for some remarks about homosexuality or something. Or you, you say something that is negative about Islam and some government officials breathing down your neck. And uh, this is going to get worse. And it was bad for the early Christians. The early Christians were slandered and attacked. The early Christians were often accused of cannibalism. They heard that these Christians went to some meeting, and in the meeting someone said, let's eat his body and drink his blood. So he was referring to the Lord's Supper. And the news got around, these Christians are cannibals, they eat people's bodies and drink, drink blood in their meetings. They were accused of incest. They said, these Christians, they were saying, you've got to love your brother and love your sister. And people misunderstood that, and they began to accuse Christians of, in, of incest. They were accused of atheism. Christians in the early churches were accused of atheism, of not, of not believing in any God. And the reason why is, you went into a Christian meeting looking for the idol that they worshipped. What, 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 what God do they worship? Let's go and see what, what the idol is that they worship. You went inside, and there was no idol. Not the shadow of hint of anything representing any God. There were no images there. So they said, well, these Christians, they're atheists. And they were persecuted for being atheists. Can you imagine that? But you see, despite the persecution, uh, which, was, which was very powerful, the, the Roman historian Tacitus said, they lit up the streets in the days of Nero, they lit up the streets of Rome with the burning bodies of Christians. Christians died in there, thousands under the regime of Nero. And they lit up the streets of Rome, put, put their bodies on lampposts and lit up the streets with the burning bodies of Christians. It's a literal fact. And yet, although they were persecuted like that, the, the Christian church spread like wildfire. It was growing all the time, by the thousands. 
And within a century or so, 10% of the Roman Empire were born again. Finally, the, the, the emperor, Constantine, says, well, you can't defeat these Christians, let me become one of them. And he declares himself a Christian. How, how did the Christians grow so fast in the midst of fearsome persecution? Capturing thousands. I mean, Tertullian could say, we've taken over everything. We're in your schools, we're in your government, we're in your armies, we're in your marketplaces, we're in your shops. We've taken over everything. The only thing we've left you is your temple and your gods. You can have them. We've taken over all the rest. If the Christians were to, Tertullian says to Scipio, a Roman, a Roman district governor, if, if all the Christians were to leave your country, you'd have nobody left, only your enemies would stay. We're the only people that pray for you. If you all left, you'd have nobody, nobody there apart from your enemies. It was true. Imagine, imagine saying that to a Roman district governor. It, it has to be true. You can't, you can't say it if it's not true. What was it that did that? What was it that caused the Christian church to be growing so fast? Well, the answer is they were so attentive to themselves. They wanted themselves to be all that they ought to be. And they were famous for their love. Tertullian would say, come and see us, you only only are out there persecuting us because you don't know us. Come and see us and you will join us. And the news got around, it was a a slogan in the first century, see how these Christians love one another. It was a kind of common saying in the Roman Empire. These Christians, they may be weird guys, but really, see how these Christians love one another. The world is not looking for great sermons, the world is not looking for great music, the world is not looking for great theology, the world is not looking for great arguments, but the world is looking for love. And when they find a community, not just an individuals, but a community of people, where people are so attentive to themselves and their relation to God, and they become people of love and loyalty and truthfulness and honesty, and gentleness and purity and compassion. Christians were famous for picking up orphans. Abortion was common in the Roman Empire. They would abandon children upon the road. And a Christian would come along and pick the child up and adopt the child. It's happening in India. I've read in Indian newspapers, if we are not careful, we shall see whole states becoming Christians. I've read that in Hindu newspapers. And thinking of the way in which children pick up, Christians pick up children. You have some daughter. Who, who, wants, a, who wants a daughter in India? You, you abandon her on the street. Leave her in some rubbish bin somewhere as a newborn baby. And a Christian comes along and says, no, no, we can't do that. We can't let that happen. Picks up the child, takes the child home. So whole villages come into being where Christians are looking after all of the children. And they say, well, one generation later, that's going to be a Christian village. If we're not careful, we should see whole states becoming Christians. And it worries them, it worries them that whole states might become Christians because of the character of the Christian people. They attend to themselves. They don't just attend to circumstances and money. They deal with themselves. They deal with their soul. They deal with their relationship to God. They, they, they want to go after love and become a people who are, who are living for the glory of God. They want to be God's image, God's representative here in this world. It transforms society. It changes whole nations. Largest number of Christians in the world is in China. It's reckoned that 10% of China are born again. I have books in print published in China by the Three Self Movement, the government-controlled church movement, steal my books and publish them to make money. How about that? (laughs) Don't don't even tell anybody. Just get up and do it. Because these books sell. These books sell amongst ordinary people. The Christian gospel spreading by being a kingdom of love, attending to the soul, attending to the real person, not dealing with our circumstances so much. We can deal with that as well, but uh, the heart of the matter is who we are as we're there in the presence of God. Are we people of faith? 
Are we people of honesty? Do we really think? We can be clever, but do we really think and examine ourselves as who we are in the presence of God? Do we come to faith? Do we come to peace? Do we have the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, gentleness and self-control? Are we dealing with ourselves? If we deal with ourselves, we shall win the world. Nothing that will change modern Europe. Modern Europe is changing fast. In 10 years, there'll be Muslim countries in Europe. Marseille is already one-third under Sharia law. Already a third of Marseille, where everybody wears buoy-buoys or burkas, and uh, Christians can't go into those areas very, very easily. Police can't do anything. It's just under Muslim law. It's already happening. But if we attended to ourselves... These Muslims coming here by the thousands, they'd be coming here to get saved, although they don't realise it. They'd be coming here to find, to find people who know Jesus. They would hear the gospel, which they never could have heard very much back in the, where they come from. We would win them. The whole of Britain would experience a new revival, a new awakening, if we attended to ourselves. What shall it profit a man if we gain the whole world, if we lose our soul? And if we keep our souls, if we guard the hearts, Ah, we could change the whole world and win it to Jesus. Let's pray before we take a break. Our Father, I pray that we may see who we are, what amazing teaching we have in your scriptures about ourselves and who we are, people made in your image, here to reflect your glory and shine with your love. People may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Teach us to know who we are and to take care of the soul and to go after those things which are the big realities in life and forget the circumstances, but go after you yourself and your kingdom of love and grace and mercy and compassion. Teach us these things and help us to guard the soul from which come all the issues of life. Do as we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.